Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. For July 14th, 2019, I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. Oh, good to have y'all both on after a little weekend hiatus because of the 4th of July holiday. Excited tonight, hearing about 20 minutes, first-time guest, Dr. Jerome Hunt of Long Beach College out in California will be with us. Um, But since we took a week off, there's been a lot, uh, I guess, happening in the presidential race, and we're going to kind of start off there. And just a general theory that some people are putting out there, um, we had the debates last time we talked, and then there was some fallout, but then things have kind of settled back. Uh, But just in the past few weeks, um, and it really hasn't been just because of the presidential race, it is some things that's happening um, in the House, uh, both Republican consultants and uh, liberal cartoonists, among others, have kind of seemed to point out that Democrats seem to be in the season of attacking each other maybe more so lately than they would normally attack Donald Trump, which is a prime target. Um, Catherine, I know I sent y'all the Rick Wilson tweet. I sent y'all the cartoons this morning, the AJC from Mike Lukovich, but you hear it other places. What are kind of your thoughts on how much Democrats should look at each other and how much they should look at the other party? Well, I think it's a primary and that part of what you have to do in a primary is distinguish yourself from the other candidates, which means you have to – I don't think you have to attack the other candidates, but you have to make a point of distinguishing yourself from the others. And I think it's um, healthy and um, appropriate. Um, I think we saw it in the debate with, um, especially with Kamala Harris and uh, uh, former Vice President Joe Biden. We saw it with um, Julian Castro and Beto, Beto O'Rourke. So I don't think it, I, I don't think it has to be nasty, and I don't think it was in the debate. So I, I think it's healthy and natural during a pri- during the primary season. I, I I disagree with this sort of um, idea that it's a, a, a circular firing squad. I just don't see it that way. I see it as net normal primary activity. Yeah, Tim, um, you know, there was those two points to our exchanges Catherine mentioned were out there. But also Elizabeth Warren seems to have done as well as anybody in the primary, and she's been the most above board. I remember right after the debate hearing her on a CNN interview, and she talked about – or maybe it was during the debate she said any of these candidates will be much better than Donald Trump. And she made that point. She kind of lifted everybody else up at the same time, lifting herself up. Yeah, she um... – You know, all through the campaign, David, Elizabeth Warren has been steady. 
I, I guess that's the best word to describe her, steady. Her campaign uh, started off in a pretty good place. Uh, it settled some, but it has slowly, slowly, slowly been gaining steam to the point where she has maintained a spot in the top four or five candidates, if you, if you want to group them off. Uh, she's talked a lot of policy. She's been uh, a very upbeat uh, sort of candidate. Uh, she's She's been pretty uh, impressive, actually. I, I've, I've been a little surprised at it. Uh, now, now, the reason we're talking about this at all is uh, Rick Wilson, you know, is, has has been doing some talking to the Republican strategist for what that's worth. And he thinks that the Democrats are focused on uh, the wrong things. Uh, I kind of see what he's saying, uh, but, but on the other hand, uh, there are a lot of issues out there that need to be addressed. Um and and I, and I think Elizabeth Warren is a little bit above that fray right now. I think I think she's she's doing very well with that. But Catherine's right. It is a primary. There's going to be a little hitting back and forth. These people are jockeying for position. They're trying to be the nominee. I really don't think there's going to be an, an inner party explosion or anything like that. Do you? Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, if it stays to the level we've had it, I, I think it's all fine uh, because you are going to have to create some differences and some nuances. I, I just don't think we ought to have anybody that becomes like because of so, something, you know, toxic. And we're seeing some people, really not the presidential candidates, but people, you know, on Twitter, on the Internet, in publications, kind of just Xing people out, if you will. And if you do that to every candidate, of course, no one's perfect. No one, the only person on this earth that agrees with any one of us is ourself. I mean, on 100% of the issues. It just, it's how it is. I mean, so nobody's ever going to be perfect. And I think we see that with uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg. Uh, two different pieces were written this week about him that were very, very hard. Um, you know, one really questioning how often. Is and the other piece just flat out, I, I think, being very derogatory, calling him Mary Pete, um, which to me pretty offensive, really to call anybody that. But then a person that is, you know, gay to say that about him because we know the old stereotype about questioning somebody's masculinity like that. Um, Catherine, you know, we, we can continue to talk about other candidates, but what was your thoughts on those two pieces? Once again, not presidential candidates. But people really attacking Mayor Pete this week, like they did. Yeah, you know, I guess, I mean, they were horrible. I read the one article that the New Republic, it was the New Republic, right? That was the mm-hmm. one that called him Mary Pete. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah, the New Republic, they took it down. They've apologized. They've lost some um, advertisers and uh, sponsors over it. Um, it was awful. I read most of it, and it was awful. And um, I guess my, I mean, it's the New Republic. It was a conservative writer who wrote it. Um, I think everyone, I think the conservatives are a little concerned about Pete Buttigieg because I think he's, you know, uh, 
he's uh, people are listening to him. I, I think he's still JV to me. I don't think he's really probably going to make it. And uh, I don't think he's going to be our nominee, but I think he's a, proving to be an important uh, leader in the Democratic Party. So I think, you know, it's awful. But I think the one thing we have to remember is that those are outside voices. They're not within the party. They're not within the, the candidates. And we need, to re- we need to learn. And it's very hard because there's so much, uh, so much yakking out there. We need to remember that a lot of the people who are talking negatively about the candidates have some other agenda that they're trying to address. Uh, whether it's a, and I don't, I think we'll, we'll see that it's not that way with our Democratic candidates. I think they're all being, playing pretty fair. You know, they might have a few little, some of their staffers might go back and forth a little bit on Twitter, but I, I think it's important to remember that um, there's a lot of people out there that have their own agendas and they're trying to push that and to always think about the source, remember the source. Yeah, now I, I don't. I'm not as familiar with National, New Republicans as I used to be, but I remember at one time Michael Kinsey uh, was the editor, and he was the liberal voice on Crossfire. Now this is back in the late '80s to early '90s, um, so New Republic used to not be a conservative uh, periodical. It's not the American Spectator, not the Weekly Standard, not National Review. Um, I, I thought it was more moderate to left of moderate. Okay. Is it changed? I could and be wrong. Slant. I don't read it regularly, so yeah, I, I don't read it regularly, so I could be wrong. It, but I, that I, mean, I don't think it's in these times or the nation either. But it used to be maybe probably. And if we say Time, Newsweek, U.S. News Report, or Middle, it was left of Middle at that time when I was more familiar. Uh, Tim, what are your thoughts on those pieces and just the kind of the general? Attacking the authenticity because that's what the other article did. It wasn't offensive in the way well, it described him, but it was attacked his authenticity. Uh, the 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 New Republic is um, a, a a more progressive magazine. It, it, it was founded by by progressives uh, okay, during the time I, I that Woodrow. During the time that Woodrow Wilson was in the White House, and I know that a few years ago they they were into the um, third way stuff, you know, the neoliberal neoliberalism and conservatism, uh, that sort of thing, and kind of moderated their viewpoints on some things. Um, but uh, I the. This was just a hit piece by Dale Peck. I, I, what was he trying to say that that uh, Mayor Pete is not the right kind of gay or something? I mean, it, it was just a bizarre thing calling him Mary Pete and said he would be like so sexually promiscuous that he couldn't ever be a good president. What 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 is he supposed to be? I mean that that's just terrible. Uh, New Republic did pull the article. They apologized, but the damage was done. Uh they they had to drop out of a climate forum that they were they were to co host with some other big groups with the candidates in September. 
uh, Mayor Buttigieg, to uh, his credit, just kind of I, I, he just tried to shrug it off a little bit. He said, "Well, he's he's thankful they pulled the article, and he appreciates their apology, and he tried to let it go with that." Um, unfortunately, in the type of world we're in, I do believe that if if he stays in the race for a long time, this this surely will not be the last time that these sort of things happen that this sort of attack happens against him what really gets me though is it was somebody other than the trump campaign that leveled the attack um trump as we know doesn't play by any rules and he would think nothing about you know uh having his minions go after him uh on something like that uh you 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 hope at some point that we've moved past this sort of thing in this country, but I guess when elections are are measured simply in wins and losses, uh, maybe it's just a pipe dream I have. What do you think? Yeah, I, and I don't know that this is going to influence any voter that would have been, no. you know, considering yeah. Mayor Pete. And that's the good news. I mean, because the guy, it was so, the, the other piece, like I said, it was not the, just the cheap hit piece. It did really, they had read his book, and they panned the book, and they talk about how accomplished he was, and uh, they, you know, were like, oh, he's very intelligent. That's the one that attacked the more the authenticity. Um, I, I wish I knew which, where that came from, but it kind of, you know, got a great grouped in, I guess, because they came the same week. Um, but just that whole, you know, saying, you know, even that person there that didn't use a, a, a pejorative was, well, he's just not that authentic, so therefore he's kind of – he's out for me. And if we start saying this person's out, that person's out, the other person's out, then at what point do we have anybody left in? And we know Donald Trump is the, is the target, is the, is the one that we're after. Um, but let's kind of move mm-hmm. the discussion – over to the other half of this, because like I said, it wasn't all presidential, probably less presidential, but some of it was um, Nancy Pelosi, um, Representative Astacio Cortez, um, and others included that had a little bit of a spat. And that's where Rick Wilson's tweet came from, said, you know, y- y'all are want to be Trump, but this is, could be a reason why not. And he said in his book that everything Trump touches dies. You know, Democrats, you're so terrible at this, talking about, you know, running campaigns. Um, Catherine, what's your thoughts on the, the House side of this? I just think it's unfortunate that they all got uh, – I, I think this is an example of of how social media and this constant – reporting of everything is can sometimes be um, hurtful and not productive. Uh, I mean, there's many, many examples of that, but I think this is a pretty good one. I think that they really all need to get together and talk. Apparently, the, the story is that that AOC and um, Leader Pelosi have not, like, sat down and spoken to each other since February. So I think, you know, it's past time for them to have a little, for all of them, to get down and sit down and talk. I think we all have 
like we always say, we're Democrats. We have a lot more in common than we have, um, than we have, than we than we have more in common than we differ on, and maybe we need to talk to each other instead of talking to the to the reporters and to, and going out on social media. That that's just, I just feel like it's a unfortunate example. Yeah, and I think you're right. They need to put the phones away, don't worry about the cameras, talk, uh, just anybody in the party talk without all that, um, and don't go through that filter. And you have meeting rooms and everything else for that. Uh, Tim, this could be maybe where some of the miscommunication comes from or lack of communications, but it's where it comes from. Um, Nancy Pelosi, when she entered the House, was she under uh, Tip O'Neill? Tom Foley, Jim Wright. I know it would have the latest it would have been would have been under Tom Foley. Um, do you remember which speaker she entered the house under? I believe she entered the house right before Speaker O'Neill. Uh, uh, I, I believe she entered while while he was there. Yeah, I, I believe. She and, and okay, so she, and I'm going to ask you this question. So she enters under Speaker O'Neill. And she's probably, when she was a freshman, probably she felt lucky if Speaker O'Neill knew her name because she was a freshman. Do you think there could be maybe resentment's the wrong word, maybe jealousy's not the right word, but you come in as a freshman and you are a freshman. You're a low person on the totem pole, and now in 2019 with social media, you come into the house and – you can become a big star, and you don't really have to, you know, quote unquote, wait your turn. You could be a bigger deal right off. Do you think there could be some, um, uh, maybe a difference in the times that comes up in Nancy Pelosi's mind? Like this isn't the way we used to do it back in the eighties. Yeah, well, you're gonna have that generational gap. That that's gonna be there. I mean, she's been there for 32 years. You know, she's she's uh, she was sworn into office in January 1987. It certainly was a a, a different a different era. Um, and. Uh, you know, there is a little blowback, I guess, between her and the progressives, especially on some things like impeachment, and uh, she probably gets a little miffed about uh, some of the freshman class perhaps making some public statements about uh, their fellow uh, Democratic House members that she wishes would be uh, kept off the front pages of the news. Now, I think that's what's really aggravated uh, the speaker right here in this particular case. Uh, of course, what is making this worse, all of this being public, is the fact that, and I know you're, you're both going to be shocked to hear me say this, but our glorious president, has decided to weigh in on it, as you know, and uh, that that just makes the thing worse. Yeah, because I mean, nobody really wanted his opinion in this argument, but and look at the opinion he, he gave. 
look at the opinion he gave. I mean, it's it's very racist what he said in those tweets about those women. I mean, extremely racist. Telling them to go back to the countries that they came from and and such. As far as I know, only one of them was not even born in this country, the lady that was born in Somalia. The others are all from this country. It's it's just terrible for a president of the United States. How many times have we said that over the years while he's been in office? (laughs) It's terrible that a president of the United States would say this, but but it is. It's just horrible. We've said it countless times, and we certainly know that Sensitivity is not uh, Donald Trump's strong suit. Well, we want to switch gears here for a little while. Uh, we may end up still talking about uh, some of these kind of topics, but we want to switch gears and bring our guest on in. Welcome to the first time to the Kudzu Vine from Long Beach Universe or College, uh, Dr. Jerome Hunt. Welcome, Dr. Hunt. Thank you for having me. Oh, glad to have you on. Well, Dr. Hunt, since this is your first time, uh, I gave away part of it where you work currently, but we know there's probably a lot before that that got you to this uh, point in life. Tell us a little about your political bio. Okay, sure. Uh, Prior to um, starting at Long Beach City College as an assistant professor in the History and Political Science Department, I was at the University of the District of Columbia um, in their Political Science Department as a visiting professor for five years. Um, Before that, I worked for the Center for American Progress as a researcher uh, for about two to three years. Um, And then before that, I worked as an intern uh, under both the Bush administration and the first two years of the Obama administration. Yes. Well, uh, just tell us one more thing before I pass it around for some political questions. The Center for Political Progress, uh, tell us more about that and what you did at that place. Well, the Center for American Progress is a progressive think tank um, that was started by John Podesta. Um, As part of my work there, I worked for the LGBTQ progress team, um, and our goal was to put out research, meet with lawmakers uh, about issues that were affecting the LGBTQ community. Yes. Well, I don't want to take up all the questions. I've got my uh, co-hosts, Catherine Smith and Tim Shifflett, on with me. I'm going to pass it to Catherine. She's going to pass it to Tim, and they may send it back to me for some more um, direct political stuff. Catherine? Hey, greetings from Atlanta. I hope you're enjoying the summer out in California. I am. Thank you very much. Hope you're enjoying the weather (laughs) in Atlanta. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we were just talking about this uh, dust-up between uh, Alexander from AOC, between AOC mm-hmm. and Leader Pelosi this week and uh, and some of the progressive, um, well, I can't remember what they call themselves, but not the progressive, co- anyway. Mm-hmm. And then the, the mm-hmm. Congressional Black Caucus got into it and everybody sort of had, there was this little dust-up and just wondering what your thoughts are about that and how we move on, move forward beyond that, and work together. Okay. Uh, well, first and foremost is politics. That's what's going to happen. Uh, I think right. that a lot of people <laughs> yeah, don't realize that it's okay to be part of a political party, uh, to support a candidate, and not necessarily 100% agree with them. Uh, the, that in my viewpoint, in my opinion, really helps us to be better because if we don't criticize one another, there's really no room for improvement. Um, 
but I will say that I am a little um, cautious uh, about what is happening, particularly for the fact that there is seems to be this um, rift between the old guard and the new guard um, in the Democratic Party, and that is a little bit troubling because we all one should be working together. Uh, but two, it just really shows maybe to some degree that the Democratic Party is sort of out of touch uh, with younger voters, with progressive voters in terms of the fact that they will rely on these individuals when they need them. But as soon as they start to cause a problem, they try to, you know, put them in their place. And every representative, every elected official has just as much say as anybody else. And by not allowing them to have their say for them to figure out how they want to actually legislate uh, for their constituents is not fair to them. Um, and everybody knows that when you start at a new job, there's always some hiccups and things that can occur. But bringing new people in and having fresh blood can actually help an institution be better. Um, and I hope that, you know, they can work their differences out and realize that, that everybody's trying to work for each other. It's just that there's different ways about going about it. I think that's a really good analysis. I was just saying earlier that I feel like maybe they don't spend enough time face to face talking to each other. I know we, we hear these rumors that, you know, they haven't mm-hmm. actually met in person for a while. And I think, um, mm-hmm. you know, I think we all sometimes fall into this, uh, you know, it's easier to go out on Twitter or Facebook or wherever, Instagram, and say something mm-hmm. than it is to just sit down and, you know, hash it out together. Um, yeah, and I agree unfortunately, with you. that's I the think, trouble I with technology. That, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the trouble and the, and the beauty in some ways. Yeah. Um, and I agree with you, and I, I, I was also saying earlier that I think this, um, this suggestion that, that, that we have the circ- this circular firing squad in the mm-hmm. uh, primary candidates, I, I think it's – uh, what do you think about that? It sounds like you agree with me that mm-hmm. uh, it's good. I mean, that's the whole point of a primary, right? Is that your – Yeah, I mean, that, that – that, I'm sorry – that that is oh, the whole point of a primary. It's for you know for voters to figure out exactly who they would like to support, and and not allowing the voters to actually have the ability to hear from multiple candidates um, what they have to say, whether you agree with it or not. It is their right to be able to at least be able to get their viewpoint out. And honestly, if you have a stronger candidate, if you have the stronger candidate, if you have the strongest message, if you have the strongest ground game, then you have nothing to worry about. A good point. Well, I'm going to pass it to Tim, and if okay. we go back around again, I may have something else to say. Okay. Thank uh, you very good, much. Good evening, You're Dr. Welcome. Hunt. Thank you for being on with us tonight. Good evening uh, to you as well. I'm glad to be here. The first round of Democratic debates obviously did very little to win of the field. In the interim, we've lost one candidate and picked up a new one. Mm-hmm. Is there any reason to expect the next round of debates to win of the field in any way? Are we looking at some other dynamic that will win or win of the field before the voting actually starts? Mm, that's a tough question to 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 really nail down. I think that 
the debate as well as other things can actually uh, dwindle down the field. I think that what we saw from the first debate is that we definitely have some candidates that are really ready to talk about the issues and really want to introduce themselves to the voters and get and let the voters get to know who they are, which has definitely you know helped uh, a number of candidates like Elizabeth Warren and uh, Senator Kamala Harris. Um, and then on the other hand, there's just going to be some individuals that while they're campaigning in the primary states that can't necessarily appeal to people, they are struggling, they may struggle to, I should say, uh, to actually get their message across. And, you know, after doing a number of campaign events, you know, dollars ultimately, you know, start to speak. Mm-hmm. Uh, and looking ahead to the uh, general election next year, it's very obvious at this point that the Trump campaign would like to make the 2020 election into, how do I put this, a culture war campaign, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Would that mm-hmm. work? Um, where I'm standing at at this moment, I say, I say yes, that that will work. Um, I think that what the Democratic Party needs to do is not only find um, a strong individual that can call President Trump out when he is making these uh, ludicrous statements that don't have any truth, but there also needs to be uh, that combined with the fact of someone that has a solid plan for what they are going to do and also has a strong ground game to make sure that they get people to actually come out to vote. We had, I think it was 68 million registered voters who didn't come out and vote last time. Those are the people that they need to be appeasing, to, uh, appeal, me, appealing to, and they also need to be appealing to those that are diehard uh, voters that come out no matter what, and those that are, you know, kind of on the fence. And saying all of that, do you believe that the Democrats should run their part of the election as a referendum on Donald Trump? I've been battling myself back and forth about this, um, mm-hmm. you know, for like the past few months. And on one hand, that is a good strategy to directly go after the president, particularly because he constantly bombards us with his tweets and, and other statements that are sometimes not true um, and are pretty inflammatory. Uh, but we also need to realize that there are there is a strong group of voters that love that. Type of thing, and there's also a, a large group of voters that don't like that type of thing, and they want to actually have the facts. Uh, they want to actually hear what people have to say. So it's just about really finding that balance, and it may take some time to to you know actually figure that out and what that actually looks like. But that is what I think the Democratic whoever eventually ends up becoming the Democratic nominee needs to actually understand. Mm-hmm. And and of course. We as a party are, are grappling with, with what I'm about to ask you about, and, and I guess the American people are, are still coming to terms with it as well, although we're light years ahead of where we were on, on these things, say, 50 years ago. But are we to the point when we choose a nominee in our party that we can totally – look beyond things like their age, their sex, their color, or their sexual orientation and just go to the candidate themselves as a competent individual to represent our party? 
Well, I, I wish that we were. Um, I think that there are a large number of people in the party, outside of the party, that are willing to make that step. But there are still also a large number of people who don't want to have conversations about sexual orientation or gender identity, about race, about gender. Um, and, you know, we have to kind of face these issues head on. If we really want to have a candidate that is going to, quote, unquote, be for everybody, then they have to listen. Uh, to the needs uh, and the issues of everybody, and you can't, you know, disclude anyone. And we do a lot of jumping around and not necessarily, you know, really listening to a lot of the different segments of our community. We just kind of go in when it's time for elections and say, hey, can you support us? But we don't really go back after that. And that's where the conversations really start and where we can really actually make progress. So I think that what needs to happen for the Democratic Party is that you need to have elected officials who actually do the work during the campaign and also do the work after the campaign. Um, and that is the difficult work, <laughs> you know, that, that, that needs to be done. It, it, it's going to, you know, put them in compromising positions like we saw with um, Joe Biden. And, you know, we all know that Joe Biden is not a racist and that he has worked, you know, for extending of rights to minority communities. But sometimes that's not enough for voters. Sometimes you have to be humble and you have to actually say, you know what, that was taken out of context. This is what I mean. I'm apologizing for this. This is what I'm going to do. And that should be enough, you know, for people to move forward. That is an excellent analysis. I appreciate it. And with that, I'm going to throw it back to David. David? Yes. Well, Dr. Hunt, I noticed from your Twitter feed you watched the first set of debates pretty intently. And then you've probably been following the campaign in general. And just kind of – I'm going to ask you a two-parter that's related. So far in the primary season, and the debates were kind of a big event when that, who really has mm – -hmm. Um, exceeded your expectations, and who was kind of underwhelmed of the twenty some odd candidates? <laughs> okay, well, um, that's a tough one um, because, I, well, what I will say is that you know I spent a lot of time in 2016 following the election, um, and this time I kind of took a different approach of just you know just seeing where things were, not doing a whole lot of in depth analysis about it. Um, so. I'm only speaking from just generalizations, not um, any specific things, but I would say um, that in terms of underwhelming, my expectations would first and foremost be Joe Biden. Um, and it's not to say that he can't, you know, come back up and surpass that expectation. It's just the fact that I feel particularly for Democratic frontrunners, particularly the last uh, few elections, there's this whole sense of feeling that this is something guaranteed to you. It's something that you have already in the bag and that you don't have to do a whole lot of work for. And I think that that is isolating voters. And I think that they wanted the front runner to come out and be very uh, communicative about what they wanted to see happen uh, for America in the future and be out there ready to, to fight for their campaign. And they didn't necessarily get that um, at the first debate. Um, in terms of ones who I thought would do uh, uh, better uh, at this time that I, that I was really looking forward to hearing from would have been uh, Mayor Pete. Um, but it just seems that he's had a, 
a number of hiccups, um, you know, leading up to the debate and after the debate. But I don't think that's going to count him out. But I think it's important for us to see exactly how he responds um, to uh, to being put in the position of where he was um, and see if he can able to pick himself up and, and, and still continue to fight. Yes. Now, who has really been like, wow, I didn't expect that person to do that well? Um, I would go with uh, Senator Kamala Harris. I really didn't expect her to do as well as she did um, in the first debate. I thought that probably her strategy was going to be more so um, to to tote a hard line, but not to really ruffle any feathers. Uh, I thought that she was going to use her experience as a senator, as a prosecutor, to really make solid points. Um, but I would say that I was definitely impressed when she went after uh, former Vice President Biden um, with you know, about his stances and actually tried to hold him accountable for it. Um, that really impressed me. Yes. Well, I, um, I do want to ask some wrap-up questions, but I want to be fair to Catherine and Tim. Uh, Catherine, any more questions that you have, and then you can pass it to Tim if you do or pass it otherwise. Um, yeah, I'd just like to let's talk a little bit more about the debate. Um, okay. I mean, I agree with you. I think, you know, Biden was a disappointment, not not really surprising to me uh, just because of who I am. But and I thought Kamala was outstanding. Um, but what about the other, you know, the like, I, I, I'll be honest with you. I felt like there were like just a few people on the, those two stages that seemed presidential to me. And I feel like the rest of them should just go home. Like, let's just focus on the ones who are really strong, but I might be mm-hmm. too, I might be, I might rush to judgment on that. Were there <laughs> any that you felt like, okay, you had your shot. Let's like, go ahead. You could, you know, thank you for, you know, agreeing to do this, but I think we've heard enough. Um, off the top of my head. No, not really. I, I feel that the debate, the way that it was structured being broken up over two nights, really wasn't fair to any of the candidates, Um, you know, trying to get someone to, to really basically get you to support them in a short 30 second uh, sound bites or a minute here response or two minute here responses is, is incredibly difficult. Um, But I, what I would hope to happen is that now that we've kind of got the dust uh, brushed off a little bit from the first debate, that individuals will come in with a little bit more uh, assertiveness um, and will actually be able to get their point across. Okay. I, 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 will, I will agree to disagree on that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Thank you. That's perfectly fine. <laughs> Tim, anything for anything else? Um, uh, yes, sir. I, I do have one more question uh, uh, because of, of the work you've done in the past, uh, especially. Many rights in recent years have been confirmed by our court system. Uh, among those are, you know, the right to marry who you choose, um, mm-hmm. a woman's right to choose. Mm-hmm. Uh, being uh, among the chief ones, if Donald Trump is reelected, are we looking at a massive rollback of the, of rights such as these? 
I think that is a strong possibility. Um, and I think it's a strong possibility not only for the fact that he has the ability to, you know, potentially appoint one or more uh, Supreme Court justices if he gets another four years, but if he is also able to win, that also means that there will be some gaining of ground probably for the Republican Party on the state and local level. Um, and that's where a lot of the attention should be uh, focused on as well because sometimes we lose the fact that a lot of court cases and things about rights are handled first and foremost on the state and local level before they make it to the federal level. And if we have a whole, uh, a large number of states that are moving in one direction, whether it be to roll back a woman's rights to choose or, or whatever have you, um, that could be potentially dangerous for the progress that has been made uh, recently. Mm-hmm. And, and, what do you believe the American people's reaction to uh, a massive rollback of personal rights that they've come to view now as part of the normal part of American life? How, how do you think the the American people might react to that? Well, I, I'm not 100% sure how they would react, but what I would hope would happen is that people would realize not only those that consistently vote on a regular basis, but those who have not and for a long period of time or for a short period of time or those that haven't before would actually start to exercise their right to vote, uh, would be more participatory in their local and state governments, community organizations, um, and, and others that exist as a way to try to change. Because you know, if we're if we're going to see this big shift happen uh, from the top, then what's probably going to need to happen is that the American people are going to have to start from the bottom and create a, a grassroots type of level campaign to get us back to where we where we are. All right, thank you for that, Doctor Hunt. David, you're welcome. Yes, well, Doctor Hunt, before you go, uh, we know you're probably working on a, a variety of projects. Uh, if you want to talk am. about anything. Uh, go ahead and tell us about that. Also, if people want to read your work or just find you on social media, kind of share with our listeners where they can do that. Okay. Well, um, the project that I can share with you at the moment is that I'm currently working with one of my uh, other colleagues to come up with the first uh, African-American LGBTQ politics textbook, which will hopefully be out um, early next year, mid uh, next year. So I hope people will be on the lookout for that and be willing to read that. Um, I can be reached on social media. Um, uh, my Twitter handle and my uh, Instagram handle are the same. They're Jerome Hunt, PhD. Um, you also can find me at my website, JeromeHuntPhD.com. Um, when I have the time in between teaching, um, I usually do try to put out some opinion pieces on my uh, website. I haven't done as many lately, but I'm hoping as the campaign and everything is ramping up that I'll be doing more. Yes. Well, uh, Dr. Hunt, thank you for coming on the Kudzu Vine, and we hope to have you on in the future. Okay. Well, thank you very much. So I would be welcome to come back in the future. Thank you. Thank, thank you, sir. Thank you. All right. Have a good that one. was Jerome Hunt yeah. of Long Beach College in California. Had to get on a said it's an afternoon for him, but hey, it's all podcasting in the end. So um it's just good for our listeners. Um well let's kind of switch gears since it's the uh later part of our show and, and let's talk about something super futuristic futuristic and exciting. Let's talk about Space Force. 
Uh, now, guys, we know we've talked about this before, and we laughed um, and, and because it, it was kind of silly, and you know, it was a a little a little press event for Donald Trump, and it seemed pretty harmless because you kind of thought that even the Republicans that just you know, whatever they'll do, any they'll listen to anything Donald Trump has to say just because I guess they're scared of him or whatever. Um, but then you think, well, there nobody would really get into this. Well, two things have been happening in the past week on this. One, Governor Phil Bryant of Mississippi went and took his state's National Guard and started a Space Force branch of the Mississippi National Guard. Literally, people are going to be assigned to Space Force in Mississippi. And then just last night for today's Atlanta Journal-Constitution, they talked about how states with coastal areas, it sounds like, or at least, I guess, near an Air Force base, are going to start vying to be like major bases for the potential Space Force. And you're like, really? And then you have to say, I'm going to add a little more to this before I pass it to y'all. You know, if your community's hurting and you need jobs of any kind, you need any kind of economic infusion, even if you thought, man, this is just nonsense, if this nonsense came with millions of dollars of, you know, no tax incentive-based um, economic development, do you kind of have to uh, appease Donald Trump's crazy pipe dream. Um, Catherine, are you surprised that this Space Force nonsense has gotten as much traction uh, in Mississippi and in other states that the Atlanta Constitution said? I was a little surprised by it, yes. Um, yeah, because, I mean, they're doing RFPs for the for the spaceport, I think they called it, right? Um <laughs> I was surprised. I, I, I honestly was that it seemed to be a very like legitimate uh, process that they're going through. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know what to think. I, I, I uh, you know, I, I, you know, I believe in you know forward thinking and innovation, but I think we have a lot of problems in our world. And I think this, while I'm not opposed to space exploration, I think we have climate um, climate issues that we need to re- probably spend that money on before we spend it on space force. But that's why elections are important. Yeah, and, and honestly, if it were exploration, it would be one thing. This isn't going to Mars. This isn't research right. in Neptune. This is You're for right, the yeah. little green men that make – I know for all those that want the little purple or blue men to attack us, I, I just boxed us in. But this is for the space aliens that are coming to defend ourselves against them, which I mean and, – and here's the thing. I mean obviously back in you know 1900, the Spanish-American War, America didn't have an Air Force. Flight developed – you know, organically, and then I don't know if it was by World War One or World War Two or somewhere in there, we developed an Air Force because there was the logistic possibility and the need for it. Um, this seems to be kind of forcing the, the the issue a bit, don't you think, Tim? Well, <laughs> well, <laughs> Space Force. It, 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 it's it's a. Do, do you remember the? It, 
I want to holler, Space Ghost. You remember that cartoon back in the 70s? Space Ghost. I know what you're talking about. You, you guys yeah. remember that one? Well, any, at any well, way. What it always, it always For, reminds me of, remember the Saturday Night Live when they the, they have the, like, uh, uh, Chrysler or Plymouth Satellite up <laughs> and flying through the air? Do you remember that? I, I it's do. It's really funny. Anyway, I'm sorry. That's what I keep thinking uh, of. But, like, this giant, you know, four-door sedan flying through the air, through the space. Anyway, go ahead. I'm sorry. I interrupted. Go ahead. First, first of all, first of all, uh, Governor Bryant down in Mississippi, this is an election year, which means that the Republicans would like to hang on to the governor's chair, even though Bryant is not running again. What better way to do that than to remind the public loudly in the state of Mississippi that the Republican Party of Mississippi is all on board with President Trump, and we believe in Space Force, right? <laughs> uh, okay, and over here, uh, like, like in uh, Georgia, I, I, I think this, you were talking about depressed areas maybe vying for these, David. I, I believe Camden County, maybe. Yes. Uh, down County. there around Woodbine yeah, or somewhere is, is, is vying to be the spaceport in Georgia. Um, I, 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 may, I, I bet Trump Tower is going to be the spaceport in New York. <laughs> and I, you, know, you know what? We, we just should call this out for being the absurdity that it is just like that wall, just like that absurd wall down there on the border. There's no point in looking the other way and, and laughing. No, let's face him and laugh at him. You know, let's, let's say, you know what, this spaceport nonsense, folks, we're going to get rid of that if, 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 we are elected, we're going to put that money into roads and feeding hungry kids and doing something about health care and doing something about some real jobs in this country, something that everyone in every community can bank on. You attack Trump in that way on this nonsense, and it'll be exposed for the nonsense that it is. Uh, yeah, let him let him run on that, and let let's see if we can do what I just said, and see how that'll work, right? Yes, and the crazy thing is, is is all of these movies and shows, you know, Star Trek and and Independence Day, all these science fiction movies, and I, I think Donald Trump missed the fiction part and tried to emphasize the science part too much. <laughs> They all have all the people around Earth coming together. I mean, Star Trek had the Czechoslovakian guy and the Scottish guy, and it did have a pull from other races, even though I think they were supposed to be from America, uh, possibly uh, the gentleman from that was Asian. I think he might have been from Japan. Um, and so all of the all of the people throughout the world come together. Well, that's kind of really opposite of Donald Trump's national agenda. I mean, if the people from the other galaxy attack us, how's he going to defend America without defending Mexico and Guatemala and all these other countries that he had such a colorful term for? How's he going to do it? 
Um, and how does this fit in with his nationalist agenda? It brings the people together, so it's a real um, you know, contradiction. But here's what I think he wants to do. One, Tim, I think he may be onto something seriously. Somehow Trump properties may uh, be on the take here because they always are. But secondly, mm-hmm. I think he's grasping at something that you know he can put his name on, and maybe he's hoping – in the year twenty uh, two thousand or whatever it is, you know, two hundred years from now, that maybe this becomes a reality. And he planted some seed in someone in history. This is going to be his mark on history that Donald Trump was the one that, that figured out space force, um, which is pretty desperate because he has the presidency, and, and so far all he seems to be intent on doing, or really two things, tearing down. Lots of presidents, but in particular Barack Obama's legacy, and um, making a little money for Trump properties, Trump industries, uh, but, but not really doing anything that would be considered but a legacy. And then serious. maybe his hor- horrible, uh, you know, grasp at that. Tim, he, he seriously wants to be the beloved figure, the hero. I I, I tell you, when Tammy Baldwin labeled him cadet bone spurs that ripped him deep i mean that nailed him good he wants so badly to be this tough guy this this man that comes to the forefront the great hero the man on the white horse Instead of the comical figure that that really he is to most people, especially around the world, we still have to do what I said a minute ago. This is absurd. Can you believe we are sitting on this show in 2019 talking about a U.S. president coming up with something that you would read about in comic books that fifth graders wouldn't even believe if they read it, and he's trying to pass this thing off like, like it, it, it is the thing, you know, and, and it's about as much the thing. It is about as useful as that wall. What is this space force? Does he really think that if aliens are able to come to this earth with the technology that they have, that any space force is going to last 10 minutes. I mean, what is, what is he doing? Why, why, why is his base willing to go along with this just utter nonsense? Why? Okay, and, and- and the thing is, is as Michael Costa, the Daily Show, went out and interviewed a ton of people outside of one of the rallies that he was holding the week <laughs> that he announced this, and they were all into it. Um, the oh. Space Force, though, and they they acted like it was so necessary, and it was like you got to be kidding, uh, Catherine. Aren't we just lucky that he hadn't watched Journey to the Center of the Earth or the Meg, <laughs> or else he'd be starting full force and fighting people under the sea. <laughs> yes, we're lucky. Though I don't know. I, I just, I, I just like my fear is that we're gonna have some, you know, giant. They're gonna start naming these bases after him, 
Like, you know, we have, like, Johnson uh, in Texas and then Kennedy in Florida. And we're, like, have some Trump Space Force, space, what are they, spaceport. That's my biggest fear. Please, yeah. I hope it doesn't happen. And if yeah, it does happen, I, I hope it's after I die. Well, and I think that it's – seriously, I think that is a rule. He has to be either out of office or deceased. Now, certain things can be named, but maybe some of the federal stuff. There will be a cooling-off period, and then, of course, yeah, uh, you know. the, the, the things wouldn't be fun to name after him because they won't exist. Yeah, but, uh, you know, Until but, hundreds of years from now when it might be necessary because you know we know time will march forward, but it ain't 2020 that it's going to march we forward. We laugh. We laugh, guys. And we should, I guess. Um, but, but seriously, this person has the power of the U.S. government and its purse strings, and all the power that it has in his in the palm of his hand, and he can do a whole lot of things with it, especially with these executive orders. It is frightening. That we have a person in the most powerful political office on this planet even talking about utter nonsense as, as, and, and then trying to make it actually happen. And <laughs> yes. no one seemingly putting a stop to it. I, I feel like I'm in a paradox or something like I just want to yeah. wake up from this awful dream. I, oh. Well, that's why I brought it up is because it's bad enough that he thought of it, but then, you know, Phil Bryant, a governor of one of our states, complete enabler, um, actually, you know, bringing this into their National Guard. Let's go ahead and try to get with one more thing real quick, and that would be the, the U.S. Senate race in Georgia. Um, Teresa Tomlinson, been on the show uh, a few weeks ago. Um, she has kind of had the field all to herself running for the Democratic nomination. Um, Stacey Abrams announced that she wasn't going to run. You kind of thought, well, maybe someone will jump in. Um, but th- there is another candidate that did come in. Um, I really wish we had t- time to discuss both questions. I'll put them out there, and I'll let you all pick from there. Uh, Ted Terry, mayor of Clarkston, has jumped in the race. So one question we can assess, Mayor Terry. Second, why has no one jumped in uh, besides Teresa Tomlinson until this week? Catherine, thoughts on both or either? Well, I think we're going to see some more candidates. I think uh, people were probably waiting for the fundraising report and seeing that, um, unfortunately, uh, Teresa Tomlinson didn't raise probably as much money as she hoped and not enough to keep people out if that makes sense um ted terry so when he won the, his most recent mayor mayor's election he got like 480 votes 480 votes hmm. so i think running a statewide campaign is going to be awfully difficult if he's especially if he stays mayor which I assume he will. And uh, so I, I think it's a little bit of a pipe dream for Ted. I like him. Uh, he's, I would consider, I consider him a, a, certainly an acquaintance and maybe a friend. Um, 
But I think this is a little – I think he's a little ahead of his skis. Yes, Tim, your thoughts on both of these questions. Well, Tomlinson raised – the reason we're talking about this at all is that Tomlinson made the statement that she's going to raise and spend $22 million, I believe it is, on the Senate race, and that's what it would take. And so in her first quarter, her reporting is 520000 and that is far below some uh, – Recent candidates uh, for for the U.S. Senate in Georgia, especially Michelle Nunn, who raised three times that much in her first quarter. Um, And what that did was that other people who had been hesitating are thinking all of a sudden, maybe there's an opening for me. Uh, How serious is she if she can't raise any more money than that? Because there is a lot of money out there to get, and I believe I can get it. So I believe that especially both Amico and and Ossoff may be looking at it because of the dollars. Um, Ted Terry obviously is going to run this race um, from the more progressive end of the spectrum, uh, believing that right there. I'm not sure how that's going to work out. Catherine, you're right. He only got 480 votes. But hey, on the other hand, Tomlinson only represents 120,000 people. (laughs) But anyway, um, (laughs) if you want to choose 480 is a lot less than 120,000 for a political base. Um, uh, another thing, though, about Tomlinson with this money, uh, guys, is that the Republicans, I noticed, are uh, poking a little fun at her about that. Do, do you think that is a weakness for her or what? Well, and it may be a weakness, and we're going to go over time here for you to go into this. It may be a weakness of people realizing what the map looks like. I mean, if you just look at Georgia and you look at Kentucky – Georgia is a lot more likely to flip than Kentucky is. And Amy McGrath jumped in, and she got $12.5 million. And she probably got mm-hmm. 12.4 of that based on the fact that she was running against Mitch McConnell. Now, we can all say, oh, Mitch McConnell's horrible, and he's the worst. But at the end of the day, if you've got a better shot to take out one of his people, uh, David Perdue, then why don't you try to do that? People need to figure out where can we, you know, spend the money to win the races. And I hope she does great in Kentucky. Um, but that state also has much smaller media markets. So, uh, I mean, good gracious, at the clip she's going, she's going to have more than enough money to cover uh, Lexington, Frankfurt, and uh, Louisville TV. Um, yeah, probably I guess she'll need to do Cincinnati too to get that northern Kentucky area. Um, but you know, what I'm saying it's. Are we looking at where we have the best shot to win? Now, of course, some people may say, oh, I'm waiting for candidate X to get in Georgia. I just don't really know who that is at this point, given that, uh, you know, Stacey Abrams says she's not getting in. And um, a lot of the bench is a lot older. I'm talking about the people that have been there, the the known commodities. So I'm not exactly sure who they're waiting for, uh, you know, to look at that race. So it, it may be time that people look and say, Let's put our money where we can realistically win something, and there may be better shots than Georgia. I mean, Arizona may be better than Georgia, but to me, Georgia's better than Kentucky. Um, 
So that that's something to consider in the bigger scheme of things. Um, anything else on this, guys, before we call it a night? Oh. I don't think so. <laughs> y'all, y'all had me worried. The dead audio, I thought we had gone dark. Well, guys, until next week, it's been the Cudsy Vine. Good night, guys. Good night, y'all. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world?